This parable that we're going to look at today is about how people respond to the gospel and why they respond the way they do. How many of you have been disappointed at times after sharing the gospel and you've been sharing the gospel with somebody for five years, seven years, ten years, and you, you're just disappointed in the, in the results, right? Then some of us have shared the gospel many times over a long period of time, and we're wondering why the results are so tiny. Well, this is exactly the question that the, that the disciples had. Because they knew the Old Testament, and they knew that here is going to be born unto us a child. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting. It almost like when you read who this Messiah is going to be, you're expecting, I mean, you're expecting some big things, right? Yet... None of the teachers of the law showed any kind of interest, possibly with the exception of Nicodemus. Yet he too wasn't like in boots and all either. And the disciples were looking at Jesus saying, now, we're seeing a lot of things happen. You feed the hungry with just a few loaves and fish, and we see you do a lot of things, but... It just seems like there isn't a big response here. And so Jesus then tells them this parable. Now before we read further beyond verse 9 where Alex just read up to, because Jesus first tells this parable to everybody, then they go away privately, him and the disciples, and then they say to him, now give us the answer keys to this parable. We didn't get what you were saying. And this is the only parable that Jesus gives us answer keys to. He says, this is that, this is that, and that's why these don't do that and these do that. <laughs> so he actually gives, he actually spells it out. Because this is the one he says, if you don't understand this parable, there's no other parable you can understand. So he made very sure that his disciples understood this parable. However, when we look at this parable... We learn from God, from Jesus, why people respond the way they do and why they reject it if they did. You see, the church exists on the earth today for the purpose of the Great Commission. Otherwise, why didn't God just take us home? You know, if every single time if somebody received Jesus and He just took Him away, can you imagine how... Difficult would be going out there saying, hey, you want to pray this prayer with me? <laughs> but the church actually exists on earth and grows and grows and grows for the purpose of the Great Commission. Or you might say we were left here in order to go and preach the gospel, to evangelize. And we as a church are coming into our season of the year where we are starting to focus on this, where we are doing different things in order to reach people. So it's important for us to have God's view of how this works. You see, all other goals as a Christian is to make us more effective witnesses in the world. For example, how many of you know that God is interested in you growing in the Spirit? 
Your spiritual maturity is important to the Lord. But your spiritual maturity makes you a better witness to the world than your spiritual immaturity would. Your sanctification makes you a better witness to the world than your unsanctified life does. So all these, the holiness making or the sanctification of a person and the maturity and the growing of an individual, they, these are all unto a goal which is to make you a more productive, fruitful Christian in this world. So you can have a better testimony. They, you could be more salty. You can have a brighter light shining and more people will see our revealed Christ. So the conclusion here is that our main goal as a church on earth is to fulfill the Great Commission, which is to preach the gospel to every nation. However, we often get despondent thinking that our preaching is an ineffective as you showed a little earlier. And so we see people respond to the gospel in a cold way. We see people respond to the gospel in a, uh, in, in a superficial way. Oftentimes when you, go to, when, you, when you walk around on the streets and you try and pray with somebody, They'll go like, all right, you know, let me just pray with you so you can go away. <laughs> you know, okay, I'll just do this. Like at family parties, right? They'll just kind of like appease you just so that they could be done with you. But different movements within the church respond to the world's coldness towards the gospel by blaming the church. Watch this quick. Now, this has happened to me a lot, and I'm sure that it's happened to you and you've recognized this, but the church or people in the church would blame the message They'll blame the message. That's why people don't come to your church. Message too hard. I've oftentimes had <laughs> the wonderful privilege of preparing a message and my heart is full. There's hardly a thing other I can talk about. It's only this. And this is what usually happens. If you're a minister, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, you, you spend so many hours on this one subject searching from cover to cover in the Bible. And then you... you you know, you, go, you get to the breakfast table and, and we're talking about what's your favorite color. And I'm like, what's my favorite color? <laughs> Jeez. You know, like it's difficult to sometimes talk about other things when your heart's full of one thing, right? And so your heart's full of, some, full of one subject. It's a hard subject. And then one of your faithful church members bring, I'm not specifically referring to today, but <laughs> it's like bring people, visitors to church and... They go like, oh, no, this is a hard message. They'll never, they'll never jump on board. Why didn't you preach? God bless you. You have the favor of God. God's going to open a door for you this week. Never, 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 never say never, never, never. Will I not believe this? You know, like, that's what they wanted to hear. That's why they're not coming anymore because the message was hard. And you say things about culture that cult, that's, no, that's no longer acceptable and all those things, right? So very often, <laughs> you know, you got something prepared and you go like, oh man, this isn't going to go down well. Because, <laughs> because we blame the message. We say the message was the wrong message, that's why people didn't jump on board. The message was outdated. The message was unrelatable. The message didn't ring with a modern Young generation, change the message. That's the one thing. As a matter of fact, I once heard a minister from where we come raise her voice. It was a lady minister with 
passion and anger over the fact that we have lost an entire generation. And I remember she banging her fist on the pulpit. Tina and I sat there. We knew it was wrong. We just couldn't quite articulate exactly how wrong this is. But she said, we've lost an entire generation because we refuse to streamline the message to fit the demands of the younger generation. She claimed that the message was too unbending, wasn't loving enough, made the church look judgmental, and these young people will have none of that. This, gen this is why this generation won't come to Christ. According to her, we have lost an entire generation because we are so bad at relating. These people oftentimes claim that the unrelatable and unkind tone of the preachers, well, it was the truth, but it's the way they said it. The user-unfriendly word of God that goes forth from that pulpit drives people out of these churches instead of drawing people. We drive them away. In other words, in this parable of the sower, by the way, which is what we're talking about, that lady minister believes that the problem with today's evangelism is not the soil, but is the sower. And his preferred version of the seed. The problem is with God. With God's ministers of the gospel, not with the unsaved people. No, no, no. They're ready. They're ready to receive as soon as you change your message and your tone. You get yourself a tattoo. Get a couple of ripped jeans. Put another two smoke machines in here. Man, that gospel goes a far way. You always know if the church is really saved, is what you do is you turn the lights off, turn the music off, and you say, all right, let's worship the Lord. Like, I'm out of here. This is not my style. I don't like your song. Well, this wasn't written for you. I don't like how you sing it. I wasn't singing to you. <laughs> right? How many times have you heard people say things like, I'd be a Christian. If only it wasn't for those Christians. I'd be one. I don't have a problem with Jesus. I have a big problem with these followers. I love God. Oh, but how I hate organized religion. I can't serve God after all of that church hurt I've experienced. Church hurt drove me away from God. What you did made me reject Him. That makes a whole lot of sense. Tell Jesus that on that big day. <laughs> Jesus, you remember Tommy, what he did to me? All church growth programs will always make attempts to fix the sower and the seed, not the soil. They will encourage churches to be seeker-sensitive. In other words, do not teach total depravity, whatever you do. By the way, never read Romans chapter 1. Don't teach on that. The fear of God, forget that. The wrath of God, no. Favor. The truth is, the moment you alter the seed in any way, you have twisted the full gospel and so corrupted the purity of God's word. The moment you make the effectiveness of the gospel rest on the person who shares it or you when you share it, 
when you think it's up to you to make the gospel powerful, then the power of God no longer is in the gospel, but in the one sharing it. Again, we missed the boat. I don't share the gospel. I'm not good at it. The power of the gospel isn't on how good you are. So no, the problem does not rest with the seed or with the sower or those who, uh, you know, sower of those who seed, sow it, but on the soil. The problem is not with who's sharing the gospel or with the gospel itself. It's with how hard the hearts of people really are. Now, Alex read the first portion of Jesus telling everybody this parable. And then, the Bible says in the next verse, verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Why? Listen, folks. Listen, please. You will find no Armenian answer this for you. Here's why. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. While hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, why not? Otherwise, they might see and they might understand and they might return and then be forgiven. What? What? Are you trying to conceal something, Jesus? That's what he's saying. Jesus said to them, to the small portion of the crowd, to you have been given the mystery. The word mystery has mean, uh, yeah, means something that could not be known otherwise apart from the divine revelation of it. In other words, God had to tell you something in order for you to understand it. Otherwise, it remains a mystery. It remains concealed. But Jesus explains it, therefore it becomes revealed. This means a person could have all the knowledge in the world, but until God illuminates this man to see the mystery of his kingdom, that man will remain blind. You see, parables are designed to reveal truth to those who have ears to hear and to conceal truth to those who do not. I want to read that to you again because I think it's new to so many. As soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given this or the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside get everything in parables. Why? So that while seeing they may see and not perceive and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might just return, repent and then be forgiven. But no. I give it in parables so that it remains concealed to them. Parables are like a coin with two sides. They are a work to make spiritual truths clear to the believer. And they are a work, to, work of judgment to obscure and hide the truth to the non-believer. Mark 4, and he goes on with, with verse 13 and 14, excuse me. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Now he's starting to give answer keys. He's connecting dots. The context is that the sower who he referred to himself right here has gone out into the country, into Galilee, 
Judea and Jerusalem. The seed has been sown into the scribes, the Pharisees, and the multitudes, and not everybody has been saved. Jesus is answering the question as to why are these guys not turning? If you are the Messiah, this new king, who shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. I mean, if, if, if this is really you, why are these guys so uninterested in you? Surely, at least some of them would be on board, but none of them are. Now he's telling them why these people aren't. And it's the same reason why when you go out and very often when you minister, people just aren't. They called towards the gospel message. Mark 4 verse 15, he says, these are the ones who are beside the road. Now he's talking about the first kind of person. There are four kinds. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In other words, the word of God never enters these people's hearts. It, the word of God, the gospel ricochets off of them. There is no conviction of sin. There is no taking to heart the calling to come to Jesus Christ. There is an insensitivity toward the Word of God. There is an indifference towards spiritual truth. The Word of the Gospel is not embraced because it is taken away by Satan. That's what it says. Satan comes immediately and takes the Word from them. But I want to say this. Here is the point of it, folks. The fault lies not with a sower. The fault here lies not with the Word. But the fault lies with a person whose heart has been hardened. And these are the wayside soil people who obviously bear no fruit. Who obviously bear no fruit. I want to say this. We are never hopeless when we share the gospel with the same person. Year in, year out, year in, year out. Because you don't know where the wind comes from and where it's blowing. You have no idea. You keep sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel. And while they breathe and have a heartbeat, there is hope. You never give up hope. Maybe, just maybe, you ministering to the same people over and over and over again because God is trying to do something in you first. Right? How about faithfulness? How about keep on ministering the gospel because you believe that God is sovereign? Do you know salvation is a sovereign work of God? Unless God births somebody they cannot believe? Again, did you believe with your heart and therefore God gave you a new heart? Or did God give you a new heart so that you could believe? Which one came first? God has to give you a heart so that you can believe, right? Salvation is a sovereign work of God. Everybody believes this. People go like, no, I don't. I think you first have to believe and then you'll get saved. No, you first are born again and then you believe. You are a new creature that believes and repents. People go like, well, that's, no, no, no. A person has to, a person has to first believe. They have to come to Christ before Christ will say, let me say this. You don't believe that. Why not? Because if you have a loved one who is running so far away from the Lord, they are in a worst possible thinkable state of unbelief and gruesome sin. What are you going to do? You're going to go on your knees. 
And you're going to say, God, God, I beg you, have mercy on my son. Have mercy on my, on my wife. Have mercy on my friend. Have mercy on my parents. God, have mercy. You will beg God to do what only God can do. And that is save that person. Everybody believes that. So we see here, the Word of God never enters these people who are wayside soil's heart. It doesn't penetrate their heart. There's no conviction. There's an indifference to the truth. The Word of the Gospel is not embraced because it is taken away by Satan. These people are like Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's who hardened his heart. So remember Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened his heart more. These people are like, are like, all the pilots of the world, Pontius Pilots of the world, who cynically say things like, what is truth? These are the Pharisees of the world who have trampled underfoot the teachings of Jesus Christ. Hardening your heart is a very, very bad thing because you will see, even especially in Romans chapter 1, those who harden their heart, God gives them over to a hardened heart. Those who give themselves to certain passions, God sometimes steps away and allows the passion now to have them instead of them having the passion. So the fault lies not with the sower, not with the word, or the one who shares the word, but the fault lies with the person who hears that word with a hardened heart. Then in Mark 4, 16, the next verse, it says, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. So we had wayside soil. And now we have a second kind of soil, which is the rocky soil. What is the wayside? That is on the side of the field where everybody walks. Nobody walks through the field. Everybody walks around the field, right? That's the wayside. And so all the animals walk down there and tread on that ground, and it's hard. Right? And people walk there and it's hard. So when, some of the, when the sower is sowing the word, some of it falls on that hardened piece of land and it doesn't penetrate at all. Secondly, then there's rocky soil right here. In a similar way, these are the ones in whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Now here, folks, here, is we have, we have to zone in and understand. You see, this is the kind of person in whom there is no resistance. Why? Because they immediately receive it with joy. Praise God. Woo! This is awesome. He said, I'm saved. Yes! But then he says... And they have no firm roots in themselves, but are only temporary. They're inconsistent. They fare weather Christians. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the problem with an emotional evangelistic meeting, of which I have hosted thousands. This is the problem with that. Not saying to be emotional towards the Lord is wrong, but 
to make a decision based on your emotions, that's wrong. Not hearing the gospel, but feeling something, and therefore walking an aisle, this is wrong. There, there's never a deep work in, these, in their hearts. There's no deep conviction of sin. Most of these people come to the cross without knowing that they are sinners. They come to the cross because they don't want to go to hell. Just want to go to heaven. There was no deep commitment to the Lordship of Christ. In other words, there was no surrender to Jesus' Lordship. There was never a deep, complete surrender to God at all. These are the ones who loved following Jesus to see Him perform miracles, but wouldn't deny themselves to follow Him. These are the ones who were part of a large crowd who got fed with the miracles of the loaves and the fishes, or fish, but only saw Jesus as a miracle-working teacher, never as Lord, just as provider. These are the ones who welcome Jesus with palm leaves as He enters Jerusalem on a Sunday, but then after Black Friday, they were among the bloodthirsty crowd who wanted Him crucified. These are the ones who start, who start <clears throat> really on fire, excited. They walk away right after that. And these are called the rocky soil Christians, who are no Christians at all, but we call them the rocky soil Christians because they bear no fruit. They bear no fruit, just like the wayside soil Christians bear no fruit, which are false converts because Jesus said, you'll know them how. Mark 4, 18, and others are on the, this is the third group, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Again, there's no fruit because of these things. In other words, they heard the word. These are the people who sit under ministries. These are the people who love to hear sermons and see miracles. They love to be part of a vibrant church community. They hear the word. But the worries of the world, in other words, the distractions of this age, the distractions of this age, the worries of the world. Do you know many people love the Lord but are too busy? Let me just tell you, nobody's too busy for anything nobody's too busy for anything. They are just, they just have, they simply have more important. Counter priorities, <laughs> right? It's like, <clears throat> if I have th two things to do and I can only choose one, I'm going to choose the more important thing. It's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for everyone. No one is too busy to serve the Lord. You just have too many other priorities. The worries of this world. And here's the next one, the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Chasing after things other than why we are here, the kingdom of God. It says, and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Again, they are fruitless. This heart is crowded with worldly occupations. This heart is crowded with pursuits, worldly pursuits, with worldly pleasures. There is not a primary pursuit to the kingdom of God, no. Other things have come 
in and became priorities, idols. And there's too much going on inside this person's heart for him to be single-focused on the kingdom of God. So God's gospel remains unfruitful in these people's lives, and they, are, they have become half-hearted. We see this throughout the Bible. These are the people who have one foot in the world, one foot in the word. These are like the wife of Lot. Um, she couldn't help but look back. These are the ones that are like the rich young ruler. He desperately wanted eternal life, but he simply had too many other things going on. These are the ones who put their shoulder to the plow, but then they look back and they are not fit for the kingdom of God. These are the ones whose hearts are filled with the system of the world, with the lust of the flesh, with the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And there's no room for the, for, for the good seed to bring forth a true conversion. So these people also remain fruitless. So we have that, that, that hardened pathway, wayside soil, produces nothing. We have the rocky soil, produces nothing. And then here we have the thorny soil. How many of you love to garden? Isn't that interesting? How you have to work so hard <laughs> at getting your plants to grow, but you have to do absolutely nothing to get the thorns to grow and the weeds. And oftentimes, they push out of your garden all the nice things you're trying to put into your garden. Well, this is the picture Jesus is drawing and showing us when you love the things of the world, this is what happens. And then he continues on verse tw with verse 20. He says, and those are the ones in whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it. In other words, they obey it, they live it, they follow it, continually accepting the word on a daily basis. It does not offend them. They hear the word and they go like, man, that's good. Ow, that's good. <laughs> you know the feeling? <laughs> man, I needed to hear that. People come to church bummed out and they're looking for a motivation, motivating word. Let me tell you, blowing smoke at somebody who's bummed out doesn't last long. But when you give them an eternal purpose to run with, suddenly they have meaning, and that is how God heals a person out of their bummed out stage. Right? And so here we see the, the, the seed being sown on good soil, and they hear the word, and they accept the word. It bears fruit, and then Jesus says, 30, 60, and 100-fold. This must have shocked them. Why? Because if you have a really bumper crop, you have about 7 to 10% return. That's what they're expecting. But Jesus said, no, no, no. When this seed falls on the right soil, 30, 60, 100. And it's not talking about money, right? 30, 60, and 100%. Return on the fruits, eternal fruitfulness. Fruit bearing is the mark of all true believers. How has the word impacted your life? How does the gospel, how has the gospel altered who you are? Your marriage, your child rearing, your relationships, on the job when no one's looking. 
How has the gospel impacted you in relation to between you and your enemies? You see, this soil right here is not shallow. There is depth. It's not hardened. It is sensitive toward God. It is soft. It is not stubborn. And it's not unbending, but it is broken up soil. It is not crowded and distracted, but it is focused and single-hearted toward God. This is the fourth soil, the receptive heart, which bears much fruit. You see, this parable becomes the ultimate validation of my salvation. It becomes the ultimate validation of my salvation. Jesus said, you will know them how by their fruits. Matthew 7, 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them how? By their fruits. You know that you cannot look into my heart and see my motives? If you conclude what my motives are, you've judged me. That's a judgment made. If I say, oh man, their heart's so filled with pride. If I just make an assumption, I have judged you. But it says God knows the heart. Man does not. You don't know my heart. I don't know your heart. But Jesus is saying that, yes, we do see each other's fruits. We do see each other's lives because we live in front of each other. That's why a community is so important. And my fruits is what you ought to judge me by. You go like, oh, yeah, but you went to a party 30 years ago. You and Judge Kavanaugh, you guys went to a party. Wait a minute. Uh, repentance is a fruit, ain't it? <laughs> That's why I love, I love seeing people repent. It's proof that God is at work. You see, the heart cannot be made good soil. I cannot change me unless a new heart is given by God. When God gives somebody a new heart, it is how He births a new cre creation, a new creature. The new birth is, in fact, the new creation, which is accomplished by the new covenant. He is doing a new thing. I want to just show you how this happens. This is so powerful to me as, as I see it throughout scriptures. You know, when you buy yourself a Mazda, suddenly everybody's driving Mazdas, right? <laughs> you look into a truth in scriptures, into a doctrine, and suddenly you see it everywhere. It's just everywhere. And the truth is, folks, that... We need to rid ourselves of the fear of evangelism, the fear of evangelizing, the fear of sharing the gospel, the fear of ministering to somebody. Why? Because you cannot change that person's heart, so don't try. The power is in the message, not in your presentation of the message, right? You don't even have to change the message. You may not change the message, <laughs> right? How am I going to say this so that they can say yes to it? Oh, I'm going to say this in such a nice way. 
No, no, we don't, we don't change anything about the message. We don't change even the way we present it. Do the best you can. Bring somebody to church. doesn't matter what the message is going to be because the seed is the seed, right? If they can't hear the word, if the word offends them, then trust me, if we put together and we, a, a message and we put as much sugar on that message as possible, trust me, three weeks later, they're still going to leave anyway. Because <laughs> what are they going to do when they start reading the word? <laughs> this is the problem. Man, I was a Christian until I opened my Bible. I'm like, no ways. I, I ain't serving this God. I want to serve my God. <laughs> it's usually what happens. If you give them sugar, then you're going to have to keep giving them sugar to keep them, right? But if they come because of the Word of God, if God changes their heart, then nobody can talk them out of it. And I just realized that the changing of the soil is by the sovereign hand of God. There's no possible way of seeing it any other way. Jesus wasn't saying, now, hey, you wayside soil. Change your heart, change your soil, become good soil. He wasn't saying that. He was explaining to the disciples why these people respond the way they do. They chose to harden their heart and God hardens their heart beyond that and then He gives them a parallel, parable in order to hide the truth from them in case they repent. He said it right there in the beginning. And then <laughs> comes to the rocky soil, same thing. They harden their heart, He hardens their heart more. He gives them over to what they've chosen, which was not God. Somebody, uh, I used to teach this this way. Well, there are four different kinds of Christians. There's the wayside soil Christian. He's a Christian, wayside soil. The Word doesn't change him at all. Then there's the stony-hearted Christian who, the Word, he gets excited about stuff, but he's never consistent. And then there's a thorny soil Christian. He's the Christian that loves the Lord and everything, but he's so busy with everything else, he just really is throwing away all his eternal rewards by not getting involved. But then there's the good soil, and everybody needs to try and move towards good soil. This is not what Jesus was teaching. Jesus was teaching the disciples that, <laughs> you know, if, you teach, if you're preaching to four people, three of them are going to say no, and this is why they're saying no. They have hardened their hearts and God has stepped back and He has hidden, obscured the truth to them in case they one day turn. That's what He said earlier. I don't know what to do with it, but that's what He said. I read it twice. <laughs> don't you become one of those like, well, I used to be a Christian, but since I saw that part. <laughs> Folks, if anything... If you pray for an unsaved loved one, pray God's mercy upon them that their hearts be softened. That God would treat them like He treated you. How long were you stubborn before He came and showed you? See, if it was up to you, you will harden and harden and harden and harden yourself all the way to hell. But guess what? God in His irresistible grace, came and over 
He overcame your hardening. He overcame your resistance. Why? Because He was merciful to you. Why? What's so great about you? Nothing. So you pray that God overcomes the resistance of your loved ones. That's what you pray. By His grace and by His mercy. Because to some, He does overcome the resistance they have to the gospel. To others, He steps back. And He allows them to do what they want. Because that's what they've chosen to do. How does He overcome my resistance? He gives me a new heart. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the... Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. Watch this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Now, let's just stop there for a second. This was at the time that they were being circumcised in the flesh. And he says, now there's a time coming when your flesh isn't going to be circumcised. Your heart's going to get circumcised. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Thank you, Lord. Everybody say, thank you, Lord. So that you, why? Why would He circumcise your heart? So that you will love Him. <laughs> That's enough to throw your entire um, theology upside down, isn't it? All God wants is He wants you to love Him. Just love Him. No, He will give you a heart that loves Him. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God. How? With all of your heart, not with some of it, but with all of your soul and you, that you may live. He causes you to love Him so that you can have life. Deuteronomy 36, verse 6. Then Jeremiah 32, verse 39. We're coming in for a closing. Jeremiah 32, 39 says, I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. That is so hopeful, isn't it? If I had to ask how many of you have wayward children, some of you would have to raise your hand, many of you. Wayward family members, many of you would have to. But this is a fantastic prom promise. I will give them one heart that they may fear me forever, for their own good, that's why I will give it to them, and the good of their children. Ezekiel 11 verse 19, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them, a new nature. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh, so that they will love me, so that they will believe, so that they will repent. That's why God gave you a new heart, so that you could do these things. You didn't do these things in order to get a new heart. Ezekiel 36 verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's all over the Bible, folks. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Why? This is how he was going to perform the new birth, which is turning you into the new creation. Because of this new covenant of his, he's making all things new. Heaven and earth will pass away and he will give us a new Jerusalem, a new temple a new heaven and a new earth it starts inside of you. The kingdom of God is within you. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 24, 7, 
I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. In other words, he will give you a heart that knows, oh, he's God. He's God. I did. I used to think it's foolishness. But whatever I, right now, I, I recognize him to be God. What changed? New heart. How did you get that new heart, that new soil? God gave it to you because he had mercy on you. So I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That's why they return. They, had an, they got a new heart. That's why they repent, because they got a heart that repents, which is exactly what he meant when he said, I am doing a new thing. This new thing God is doing is the fact that when you share the gospel, not all, but certain hearts will respond to that call. Why? Because he just gave them a new heart. That's why we, can't, we have to strip ourselves from the fear of evangelizing. We have to remove every concern we have because we didn't write the script. And the power is not in our presentation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And when the gospel goes out, it's God's call that goes out. And some, many won't, but some will. That's why you can go to any part of the world, no matter how unevangelized un the world has been, no matter how unchristian that world may be. Asia, doesn't matter where you go, Russia, you can preach the gospel. And guess what? There are those who will respond. They will respond. Why? Because they just got a heart that sees. They just received a heart that wants to repent. They just received a brand new heart of flesh that, that believes. And God calls you to be a part of what He is doing. This is a privilege to preach the gospel. Every single one of us have that privilege. This is how God establishes His kingdom. By regenerating fallen man's heart. And He invites you to participate in what He's doing by giving you the privilege of sharing the gospel with others. Let's pray. Father, I thank You today for showing us that the effects of the gospel is Yours, not ours. The new heart of flesh is Your doing, not our doing. The birthing the new birth is the doing of the Holy Spirit, who's like the wind. We don't know where He's coming from, where He's going, when He will do it. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit. We are, in other words, 100% reliant upon you when we share the gospel. It is all of you. It is your work. And even when people turn away from the gospel, we will not be disappointed because you are sovereign. We preach the gospel because you asked us to, because you commanded us to, because you mandated that we do. And this is our calling, and this is our privilege. Thank you, Lord, that when you gave this parable, 
even though you do conceal the truth to many by telling this parable, you revealed the truth to us by giving it to us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, graciousness, your kindness toward us. Give us courage, Father. Give us boldness, Father, to share your word. Amen.